0: there's politics and then there's politics. Sometimes politics is the art of the possible, but sometimes it's the art of intervention that screws everything
1: up. That was the voice of John Freemuth, a public policy professor at Boise State University, as well as the Cecil Andrus Endowed Chair of Environment and Public Lands for the Andrus Center for Public Policy. John passed away just over a week ago on May 2nd of 2020 at the age of 69, but I had the opportunity to interview him in December of 2018 for an oral history series focused on the creation of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. Listeners of our podcast series Common Land will recognize John's voice from episodes 5 and 10 of the show's first season. Although I only had the chance to talk with him a handful of times, I got a sense of both John's extensive knowledge of public policy as well as his kindness and generosity.
2: John brought a body of knowledge when it comes to public lands that is just unmatched.
1: That's Tracy Andrus, daughter of former four-term Idaho governor and Secretary of the Interior Cecil Andrus.
2: Take the man himself who was so laid back, easy to talk to, he never had a bad word to say about anybody, and he never made you feel stupid, frankly, and, and he knew so much more than you did, but he he had that incredible ability to just have a one-on-one conversation, and, and you walked away feeling like you'd learned something.
1: You're listening to a special presentation of the Common Land Podcast, a tribute to John Freemuth, whose work as a public policy professor and an advocate for protecting public land has strongly influenced the way we view and manage these lands here in the West. John Freemuth grew up in California and got his bachelor's degree from Pomona College in 1972. He spent time working as a high school teacher and coaching cross-country, but his education in public lands started when he landed a job as a park ranger.
0: Yeah, I was a ranger at Glen Canyon, or to some people, more like uh, they'd know it as Lake Powell. And so I worked everywhere from Lee's Ferry uh, up and up through the northern part of the park.
1: John then went on to get a doctorate degree from Colorado State University in politics and government and started working at Boise State University soon afterwards. It was here in Boise that John would meet the man who would later serve as a mentor, Cecil Andrus.
0: The joke I like to tell is he was my boss three times. When I was a ranger, he was Secretary of Interior. He was the big guy way above. (laughs) And then, of course, I come here at Boise State, and he's running to be governor again. And so I would go to some public events where he'd talk, and like, wow, that's that guy, you know? And then when he left the governorship, I'm at graduation, and he announces that he's opening the Andrus Policy Center at Boise State. Wow. I wonder what that's going to be like. And then, you know, months later, there was a call. Anybody would like to meet with the governor, former governor, then talk about the policy center and their interests. We'll have a meeting. And about five people came and um, my take was get to work with Cecil Andrus. I mean, it's like getting a PhD in the real world. And I was the only one who kind of followed through on it. Um, and so over time, you know, we developed a relationship where we did these conferences on public lands and other things, national forest, wildfire. and we I, we just developed a nice working relationship. Um, I kind of feel like I'm the third or fourth wheel as as a legacy keeper now. There were others who worked with him when he was in office in various places. Chris Carlson, who just passed away, was his uh, a press secretary, when he was Secretary of Interior, and then Mark Johnson. Um, was his chief of staff during the, the when he, the governor returned for his third and fourth term. So they're sort of the legacy keepers, but I like to play a little role there too.
2: Oh, well, John and Dad were very close, and, and John always called Dad the boss. But, um, but they looked at these issues through the same lens.
0: The mission of the Anders Center is environment and public lands, education and leadership. And Anderson's career began in education and fighting for kindergarten. Alaska is probably his greatest environmental legacy, but as a, someone who once, he, once President Carter lost, Andrus made it clear, I'm going back to Idaho. I am not becoming a Belway guy. Um, and I think he would think that that's one of his great Idaho legacies in the environment, is birds of prey.
1: But while Cecil Andrus was serving as a mentor for John Freemuth, Freemuth was also serving as a mentor to his many students at Boise State University.
3: He was definitely like the cool professor. Um, Class was really informal. It was a lot of discussion.
1: That's Amanda Hoffman, the manager of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area.
3: And so you'd be in class and you'd really feel like you were getting these like backroom stories the real nitty-gritty of the agencies which was always fascinating and then John was one of those professors where we'd all go have beers after class and that was really the first time that I'd had a professor that was so um available to the his entire group of students. I really did not think I was ever going to be able to get a job for a land management agency. Um, but sitting in those classes definitely like maintained my interest in land management policy and ultimately set me up so that I could get a job, you know, originally as a writer-editor, and then I've been a planning and environmental coordinator, and now I'm a manager. And so it was kind of always that that dream that I didn't entirely think I was going to be able to the that having John's support has been um, so amazing. And When I first got into the Bureau of Land Management, he was one of the first people I sent an email to. He loved his students, and he believed in their ability to care for the resources that he loved so much, and he was really committed to trying to set them up as best he could to work in those agencies. So uh, John adored Cecil Andress. Uh, He was one of his mentors. And John believed so strongly in everything that Cecil was doing for the environment and environmental policy. And so uh, John was very aware of how Cecil felt about the Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, he was so instrumental in getting that designated. And so I I think when I was able to take the position of manager of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, John was just tickled about it. And I think to him that was kind of like a full loop moment. You know, his mentor and idol had really been so instrumental in getting the area designated and now he had a student that was managing it. And he just always seemed so proud of that, that he was, he personally now was able to contribute to something that Cecil Andrus felt so strongly about. It's really interesting working in that area the number of students of John Freemuth that you ran into. I mean, they're just all over the agencies. Um, It allowed him to maintain this incredible network where he really did have the inside track. He really did know what was going on in the agencies and how the employees felt.
1: Freemuth's insider status within federal land management agencies came in part from his time spent as the chair of the BLM Science Advisory Board. So... You were the science policy advisor. Chair of the
0: BLM Science Advisory Board when such a puppy existed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you can just talk a little bit about, like, what that position entails. See, the thing about BLM,
0: and I'll tell a little funny story here. I've told it in other forms, but this will get wide-ranging, is when the two Bundy brothers occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge and then started complaining about BLM, um, you know, that store went, that story went national because, oh, what's this like the old West, cowboys, Indians, guns, hats. And so I got a call from a couple of guys in Philly, right? And it was a talk show and, and I don't think it was public radio. It was just a talk show and they're great. They're, they're talking to me and, and they say, we don't understand out here why these ranchers are so mad at Black Lives Matter. And I said, what are you talking? Wait a minute. You mean BLM? They go, Yeah. I said, that out here, that's the Bureau of Land Management. And then they go, who are they? And I said, well, you know, the Park Service has 80 million acres it manages, and BLM has about 250 million acres. And, you know, their response was, holy, tell us about that. You know." And I said, well, you're not supposed to know who they are. They're not back there like the Park Service is because you have Shenandoah or you have National Forests back there or Wildlife Refugees, but no BLM. And so... Um, and that was a funny side point, but um, BLM doesn't have a huge science component to it. It relies on others. A lot of the sage grouse issue was a lot of the research used by BLM is from USGS, United States Geological Survey. And some of the best sage grouse ecologists were right here in Boise, Steve Knick, the leading guy who wrote a lot of the reports. And so our role was to help BLM figure out how to market its science needs. We wrote a science strategy which suggested what the role of science is. And the cliche that a lot of people don't get is science is needed to inform. It's necessary, but it cannot make decisions that are really value decisions. Climate falls into that one. You know, we could let us just accept that there is climate change. The issue is what to do about it. And science can't tell us what to do about it. That's you and me. What can we do? How can we get agreement to deal with this? When people always say the science is in, I always say, great, now what? Right? And so that's what we tried to do there. And we we were supposed to advise BLM, you know, on how to think about things. Now, the reason I was chair is I understood the policy bureaucracy. I'm not a Real scientist, as I always tell my ecological friends and so forth. Um, but but I knew that, so I was chair. but when when the administration's changed from Secretary Babbitt and President Clinton to President Bush, uh, the second bush, obviously, and and his administration, we didn't last very long, but I do remember a meeting where um, the then coming in BLM director kind of met with us out of see before she abolished just like three weeks later. But um, they were going to try to accelerate oil and gas leasing, kind of what we're doing right now. Um, and I, I remember just talking about, well, if you're going to do that, you have every right to do that. You're in charge now. But you could use us to find out what the pitfalls are so don't, you don't find yourself in court all the time by trying to lease in a place you shouldn't. That was our role advice on how to think about things on you know there are probably places we ought to be doing oil and gas but there are places maybe we shouldn't like right next to a national park for example um, the, the what was emerging back then is as they were doing coal bed methane leasing and then pumping pumping the gas out of the out of the rocks they the water would go in a holding tank that holding tank then began to breed West Nile virus, which then would affect sage grouse because mosquitoes would bite the sage grouse and they'd die, Um, like we saw squirrels here five, six years ago. We could tell them about that and how to be careful. Our job wasn't to say, don't do oil and gas or do it, Um, but to think about how to do it to create less conflict. Everybody should have science advisors um, as long as those scientists understand their role.
1: So the science advisory board was just cease to exist. Yeah, it
0: was called a FACA committee, which meant we were chartered by the Secretary of Interior and appointed by by Secretary Babbitt. And so the, the, and they, they don't have permanence. And they shouldn't, really. The next secretary decides, I don't need that. And I think that was wrong. Our terms were going to come up anyway. So it's not like I'm saying, we well, got to keep us because I got a fun thing to do. It's no, there should be new people. And then they could stack it, which is not a good thing. But no, they last as long as they're useful. They shouldn't, you know, otherwise it's just too much bureaucracy if they exist forever.
1: After serving on the BLM Science Advisory Board, Freemuth continued to seek out opportunities to share his message about the important role of science in determining public policy.
2: He was a highly sought-after moderator when groups would come together to, to talk about these issues because he could bring in the viewpoints from all the different stakeholders and help bring the dialogue around to, what do we really need? You know What is critical to, to this stakeholder group?
1: Here's Freemuth giving an introduction at the 2018 Western Governors Association Working Lands Forum. So Jim said
0: this wouldn't be an overly academic meeting and he introduces an academic. So we're meeting here on talking about working lands and landscape-scale conservation. Now, how do we get here? What I try to do with students, and some of you know this when I teach public lands, is go through the whole history. We started with acquisition of the American estate, then we disposed of it, or tried to dispose of a lot of it, and we did. Then in 1872, when we we had two landmark laws passed, the mining, Law of 1872, and Yellowstone. And that that set forth the era of reservation. Uh, Plenty of people still believe in the earlier eras. There are a number of people who would still like what we call the federal lands to be transferred to the states or perhaps sold. We're not going to get into that here, but those things stay with us as we talk about all this. Then we entered the era of management with the conservation movement of the turn of the last century. It really was a different era in the way people could trust, I guess you could say, experts and professionals to take care of the federal estate, led by men like Gifford Pinchot of the Forest Service and Teddy Roosevelt. After that, though, we started entering into an era of much more politics, what we, what we call interest group politics, which I don't have to tell you sort of dries everything in American politics across the board. And that got manifested really in things like the Multiple Use to Stay and Yield Act, which maybe worked for a time, but maybe never gave federal land managers clear direction of how to prioritize things, which actually led to one of our first panelists in the, uh, coming up in a minute, Jim McGagna of University of Wyoming, not University of Wyoming, but Wyoming, to once say that multiple use means I gotta eliminate your use to protect my use. And we're kind of still in that era. Then I guess we began to stumble and bumble into ecosystem management. Now, is that like what we're doing today? No, I don't think it is, in talking to some of you, because that, however well intentioned, sounded really green to people and it never had local buy in or buy in down at the grassroots level. So we talked about it a lot, but it didn't lead anywhere. Now we're in the era of collaboration. Hard thing to define. Sometimes we see great successes and some of the panelists are gonna talk about that to you in the next day. What's worked? What hasn't worked? What are the obstacles? Are there things we need to change to make it work better? You
4: know, there's the, there's the, the Fremont lecture that brings a smile to my face as I think about it.
1: That's Lauren McLean, the mayor of Boise, Idaho.
4: When my husband and I came to visit Boise back in March of 98, we really didn't expect to move here, but we were just taking advantage of an interview he had. And I fell like head over heels in love with this place. And we decided we were gonna move here instead of um, head to Seattle as we'd planned. And I was in Seattle, I was planning on going to law school. My husband had a job. And so once we decided in March that we were gonna do that, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I kind of panicked. And I came back in April to look around to see if I could, you know, find something that would work for me. And someone I knew in Montana had suggested I uh, reach out to John Freemuth. John was actually the first person I met in Boise for me as I was thinking about how I could build a life here. I wanted to move here so badly, but I didn't know that I'd be able to find school or a job. And so my um, I still can remember what I was wearing the day I walked onto Boise State's campus and into John's office to talk with this person that, you know, happened to know somebody that I knew. And he urged me to um, follow that kind of passionate response I had to this city and move here, and encouraged me to come to Boise State for my graduate degree, and convinced me that with that, you know, I could do so much here. And that there would always be opportunity. He took us all in. Like, he and his family really did. Their, their house was open to us at, at um, you know, they'd have different student events for us. And we just got to know each other in different ways. And through that, he would um, push each of us that showed an interest to really dig into issues we cared a lot about. Um, to ask a lot of questions and to feel really comfortable um, giving voice to um, our beliefs around um, issues and values and in particular, the environment and public lands. What made me different in some ways than other students in the program was that I wasn't interested in going into an agency to work on public lands or the environment. But instead, I wanted to be on the advocacy side of things um, and influence policy. And um, you know, he was very encouraging of that. And, and for many, many years, um, would, as I was trying to d- decide what was next in my life, he'd be someone that we'd grab a cup of coffee or lunch or just even chat on the phone if we couldn't get together about where I was, what I was thinking, um, and what I thought might be the next step And for me, making a career decision um, was always tied to the impact that I um, thought that I could have or should have in the steps I was taking or in my life. Um, John was someone that I went to to check in. And he would, I, I should say too, he'd goad me, right? Like he'd encourage me. He'd be thinking about what was next for me before I was. He was a teacher first right a professor first and there are hundreds and hundreds of students that were lucky enough to be in a classroom or a lecture hall with him and you know beyond his family as legacy those students um, and their understanding and appreciation of public lands and the role that public lands policy has had in shaping the culture and politics of the west um, lives on. There, are you know, countless people that have been influenced by his thinking and and lecturing and writing on the topic.
2: He was such an incredible champion for these young people. And and as he helped them build their own body of knowledge and their own way in this industry, he knew that he was creating the leaders of tomorrow. And that was important to him. And frankly, it's those people that will carry on his legacy as they deal with the issues in the future.
3: As a former student and as a land management agency employee, I think whether I needed to celebrate or to commiserate, I always knew that John was there. Um, He was smart and kind and curious and approachable and outspoken. And he was everything that you could ask for in a professor and in a mentor and an advocate and a friend. And I will miss him fiercely.
1: The voices you've heard in this program represent just a small slice of those whose lives were touched by John Freemuth. Beyond his students and co-workers, John also had a special relationship with many journalists. He was a go-to commentator for many news outlets on any topic related to public lands or environmental policy. The popular Idaho public television program Outdoor Idaho recently shared that Freemuth holds the record for most appearances on the program. I feel extremely lucky to have had the chance to sit down and interview John on several occasions, and I'll share a few additional segments from that conversation here. I remember being extremely impressed by how John navigated his responses to some of today's most controversial public lands issues. How how concerned are you about efforts to privatize public lands?
0: I don't think that'll ever happen simply because that's what unites uh, a lot of different public land users who may fight over, well, I don't want ORVs here or I don't want this or that. Um, and we see an example of it with these two brothers from Texas who are locking up roads. Now, those weren't public lands. Those were private lands that were timberlands that the company sold to these guys, which the, which the folks up in the McCall area— um, all used, I mean, those, the timber industry, they kept the roads open unless they were doing a little logging. And these guys come in, boop, gates. And so it's pretty easy to argue that if you privatize the federal lands, then that's going to happen a lot more. And, of course, you then take the next step to if, if you transfer the federal lands to the states to manage. And if there's one thing I'd harp on for all the listeners here is anybody who ever says, well, those lands should be given back to the states is wrong Idaho ever ne- never had the federal lands. That was a territory first. And then land was granted to Idaho and the rest stayed under federal management. Okay. But if the state and they could be transferred, that's totally constitutionally legal to the state. The state can't afford to manage them like the federal government. So what are they going to do? They're going to sell off some of it. Well, bingo, the minute that starts, you're going to see locked gates, most people think. So that's why I don't think that's going to happen. People are afraid of privatization, and, and the state has great professionals. Don't misunderstand me in the Department of Lands and so forth, but they also manage lands for different purposes, and they don't have the money. Mike Simpson, to his credit, once had a Congressional Research Service study done of the cost of managing federal lands in Idaho. It was, it was a, a high of $300 million a year. Where on earth is the state going to get that kind of money to do that, even though they could probably do it a bit cheaper? Because they just there's less sunk costs with Washington, they're not, you know, and I think Governor Otter, to his credit, and others who were sort of big on that, realized we can't do this, but what we'd like is more voice back to the collaborative federalism again. Um, but people need to be vigilant because, like cicadas. This stuff comes back about every 15 years. So you can count on somebody getting on their horse again and going, the state's can do a better job, or we ought to let the market do this. It will happen again. Yet I can just show you the times it's happened in American history. It never goes away.
1: You've been listening to a special bonus episode of the Common Land podcast, a tribute to John Freemuth. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise. Our first season of the show took a deep dive into the history, science, and politics behind the creation of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, and John Freemuth played a key role in the series. Special thanks go out to our partners from this first season of the show, the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds Archives of Falconry, and Patagonia. We also would like to give special recognition to the Andrus Center for Public Policy, the organization that John Freemuth helped shape alongside his mentor, Cecil Andrus. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, the Great Turtle and the Idaho Songs Project. You can learn more about the Common Land Podcast and see a full list of credits on our website at commonlandpodcast.com.